Uh, well, thank you. Um, <clears throat> thank you all for coming out tonight. This is Jared and I teach in the religion department and I'm the director of the St. Benedict Institute. And we're very glad to be hosting Bertha Manninen for this. I want to thank all of our co-sponsors, the department, the political science, psychology, religion, and women's studies departments, along with Vox Populi, Ministries, the Center for Ministry Studies, Markets and Morality, Hope Catholics, and Students Cherishing Life. So clearly, uh, there are many people on campus who think the issue of abortion is important. And not only the issue, but civil dialogue too. So something so often lacking in our public discourse. So I'm grateful for Jack and for their witness their witness to friendship, and their witness to civil disagreement as they pursue the truth. So let me introduce our speakers briefly, and we'll get started. So Bertha Matt is, is this thing just going in and out? Is it me? Yeah. Okay. Let me try again. I'll hold it like this. A little more hardcore this way. All right. This is terrible. Anyway. Bertha Manninen uh, is an associate professor of Humanities, Arts, and Cultural Studies at Arizona State University. She writes and teaches on applied ethics, biomedical ethics, philosophy of religion, and social and political philosophy. Her last book, which is for sale in the back, is Pro-Life, Pro-Choice, Shared Values in the Abortion Debate. Bertha will be arguing pro-choice side. Jack Mulder is the chair of the philosophy department at Hope College. He writes and teaches in the areas of philosophy of religion, Catholic thought, applied ethics, uh, and the thought of Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, his last book uh, was What Does It Mean to Be Catholic? Also on sale in the back. Jack will be arguing the pro-life side. Uh, as most of you know, Jack... Hello, Jack and Bertha. There. Uh, just recently co-authored a book together, uh, which has the same title as this event, A Civil Dialogue on Abortion, also on sale in the back. Um, so, all right, just uh, to... There you go. Thank you. This is so much better. Okay. This is not supposed to be a funny event. Okay. You guys got your game face on? We're good. Okay. All right. So, uh, Jack, Bertha, welcome. Uh, so glad to have you here. So glad to have so many beautiful people here. Uh, so the issue of abortion divides so many people, and yet you two are friends. So tell us a little bit about your friendship. How did that friendship come about? This is work? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we went to school together and we were office mates. Um, so you, you're really crapped quarters, so you have to get along. But, but it's, not, it's not hard to get along with Jack. Jack is, uh, Jack, both Jack and his wife Melissa are hands down two of the best human beings I've ever known. And I'm absolutely blessed to have them in my life. And I don't, and yeah, I, I just, 
I don't have anything bad to say about him ever. No. Well, the feeling's mutual. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, okay. Oh, am I? Am I yeah. Okay. I think you can hear me? Yeah. All right, so I'm going to go with the idea that you can hear me. How's that working? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I need, I need more volume. Let's see, what can I do about that? No, they, they were joking. I was getting somebody. Sarah was telling me <laughs> I needed more. All right. All right, is that better, Sarah? No, that's so worse. <laughs> It's actually just Laurel and Hardy. This is just a vaudeville show, not a di dialogue at all. Anyway, keep going, Jay. All right, well, we'll try this. Um... All right, we'll try this one more time. Um... Yeah, so uh, uh, we were just saying uh, feelings mutual. Uh, Bertha and I have been friends for a long time. Uh, and, you know, I mean, getting to know Bertha was, was just great because he, we, we were kind of debating about issues in philosophy of religion and ethics and this kind of thing. This, we clearly disagreed, but we clearly valued the truth. We clearly just uh, enjoyed each other's company and just had fun. And so it wasn't... You know, uh, it was just the kind of thing that philosophers like to have. We've been it's doing just, this for years. Yeah, yeah, so this we've just been kind of doing this kind of thing, um, talking about hard issues for years, and it's just been fun. And and we, you know, we never wanted to lay aside a friendship just for the sake of acrimony, and so we had fun. So yeah, so that's what made us write a book, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Great, thank you. All right, so let me ask you a hard question about your co-author. So in the audience, there's probably some people who are pro-life, some people who are pro-choice. And on those sides of the debates, we often think uh, the other side, or some people on the other side, actually shouldn't have a voice in this dialogue. So Bertha, let me start with you. So some people say that men should not have a say in the abortion debate. And clearly you disagree. Uh, but how would you respond to someone who argued that men should not have a say at all where it concerns abortion. Okay, you're good, you hear me? All right, cool, so I do have some notes and I'll read a little bit, but uh, in general, so like in terms of where abortion is a philosophical issue, like what does it mean to be a person, what does it mean to have rights, when rights conflict, who gets a say, I think men have a voice in that issue because men are philosophers just like women, so in the areas of abortion that, that philosophy is, is part of it, then of course men have a voice on those philosophical questions. Um, I actually also take seriously the idea that men have a voice when it comes to pregnancy, where, where there could be a disagreement about what to do with a pregnancy, and I've written about that. Um, there are a lot of philosophers that have argued that, that, uh, that, there's some, there's a, that it's unfair that women can get an abortion and you know, they have a second chance to decide whether or not they want to be mothers, whereas men don't appear to have a similar right. And I think that literature is important, and I've read it and I've talked about it. I've, I've written an article about um, how men should be listened to in situations where the woman wants an abortion and the man doesn't. Uh, so in situations where there's, when there's a, a, dis a disagreement about what to do about a pregnancy, I think that men have a legitimate voice in that, right? It's 
fetus is 50% theirs, right? So um, how, how to cash that out, we can talk about that together. Um, I don't think in the end men have veto power over a woman's decision to have an abortion, but that doesn't mean that they don't have a say in some sense. Um, what I think gets people frustrated, um, when, I, when I talk to women about who, who think this, why can't why, you know, men should have a say in abortion, uh, typically I think those are people that are frustrated when it appears that men are making decisions about li about lives that don't that will negatively impact women and will have no repercussions on them, and I think that's where the frustration lies. And and there's been a lot of that's been happening for a while. Right, women's reproductive lives are are a lot more uh, the, are more regulated than men. So like you know we're we're debating whether or not insurance should cover birth control, but we never had that debate about Viagra, right? Things like that. Um, I think also there's, you know, there's, well, philosophers use the word phenomenology. What is it like to be uh, a pregnant woman? And men seem to have a lot of opinions about something that they can absolutely never know about. And so, like, situa I, I have some quotes here. So, like, people, they got really upset when a lot of politicians were saying things like, well, you know, if pregnancy is due to rape, um, if it's real rape, the body has a way of shut real rape. The body has ways of shutting that down. Or... Another quote I have is that, quote, if rape is inevitable, women should just relax and enjoy it. And then another one that says, rape victims should make the best out of a bad situation, right? So I think when men are talking about things that they can never understand, that's where women get frustrated. Uh, when I have male students saying things like, well, abortion's, no, you know, pregnancy, you should, abortion is bad because pregnancy is not a big deal. It's only nine months. And then you have the baby and you're done with it. No, right? It's not at all like that. Uh, those nine months are really, really f physically precarious, psychologically significant. Uh, whether or not you want the, the, the pregnancy, it's still psychologically and physically significant. So things like that. Uh, I think the insensitivity to what it's like to be a woman in that situation is what most women are responding to. And in those situations, I think we would all benefit from some sort of humility, right? I, I, the same humility that like, I'll never understand. I'm doing a lot of disability studies now, and I can't do that without listening to people who actually have disabilities, right? I am not one of those people, so I need to shut up and listen. Um, I don't know what it's like to be black in America. I need to shut up and listen. And so similarly, I just think when we're talking, when we're having opinions about things that we can, we can absolutely never really know what it's like to be that person, we would benefit, all of us would benefit from just listening. And I think that's where the frustration comes, that this lack of listening. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Bertha. So, Jack, I want to ask you sort of a similar question. Um, so, in order to be pro-life uh, about abortion, it seems that one needs to think that abortion is killing. But if one thinks that abortion is killing, it's as serious as that, how can it be a matter for civil dialogue? So how do you respond to a pro-lifer who thinks that there's no room for dialogue on abortion? Yeah, um, okay. I think I need to hold this up. If I do, I think that works a little better. Okay. All right, so, um, so I want to say three things about that. Um, one is that uh, you use the term uh, killing, and, and one of the things I want to say is that uh, that's that's sort of a, a, a broad term for any uh, destruction of life, but uh, it really a kind of thing that a coroner could 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 determine. But uh, there's a there's a people sometimes uh, in 
in bad corners of this debate sometimes use the word murder, and I think that's the wrong word for this debate, actually, right? Um, uh, because, I mean, if you look at penal codes, right, uh, you know, they will say that, you know, that, that's a legal determination. That implies culpability, right? It implies what's called in the law malice aforethought, right? Uh, and I just think it's implausible, right, to think that uh, malice is what's going on in just about every uh, case of abortion. I mean, maybe it's logically possible, but it doesn't seem very likely. Right, uh, malice just seems like uh, the wrong idea, right? Um, so I think that's a word that's out of place, really, uh, in the, in this dialogue, right? It, it 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 just doesn't correspond to what's going on. But there's another thing I want to say about that, and that's um, so so understanding a little bit of kind of the the dire nature of you know someone who's facing a choice like this is part of is part of uh, realizing why there needs to be some dialogue. The second thing is that. Um, you know, friendship doesn't work that way, right? Uh, you don't determine your friends based on, uh, you know, uh, you know, sort of litmus tests and ideological, right, uh, figuring out of, you know, who thinks a lot like you, right? That that's going to lead to just, you know, echo chambers and ideological hardening, right, and resentment and all that kind of thing, right? That's usually just that's just not how friendship works, right? Uh, and so, uh, if you want genuine friends, right? Uh, I think, right? Uh, and and you want to, uh, you know, decide, figure out how to have friends across ideological uh, divides. Then I think, you know, uh, you need to realize, you need to be able to get into inside other folks' heads. Um, a lo last one here, a last thing to say, just is that, um, you know. Dialogue itself uh, involves a recognition, I think, of kind of where you are with, with, with people, right? Uh, this actually is a complicated issue. It's been a complicated issue for thousands of years, actually, right? Uh, you know, um, and I mean, for instance, I mean, you can read Plato's Republic, and Plato, Plato himself openly advocates infanticide, for crying out loud, right? But we don't think that Plato is unreadable, right? Uh, we think Plato is an important figure to read in the history of thought, right? Uh, and uh, this is an issue about which intelligent people disagree, right? Uh, and when that happens, right, uh, you've got you've to respect folks that, that do and that disagree and can hear you out, right? Uh, also, just uh, one quick thing. Um, I think I'll stop there, actually. I think, I think, I think that's going to be okay for now. Yeah, stop there. <laughs> Can I highlight one thing that he said that I think is important is how he started off by saying, I, don't, I think that killing is, or murder is the wrong word to use because it implies malice that you don't think exists or you think it's, it's reasonable to say in most abortions there's very little malice going on. This is like the kind of thing that I think facilitates civil dialogue is, is, the, is the fact that he starts off with an assumption of goodwill. And that he starts off with an assumption of, of goodness, that just because someone is doing things I disagree with, I'm not gonna assume that they're this horrible, evil person. And I think that's vitally important. Um, and I think that's something that, like, I know, I know he's a good person. I know he's not out to, like, destroy women's lives, right? And he knows that I'm not out to, like, I don't peruse hospitals looking to kill babies, right? So I think that we don't, we, as a society, we just start off with, like, if you disagree with me, there must be something morally depraved about you, and that's why we're not. So I just wanted to highlight that I'm, I'm happy that you included that because I think that's vitally important.
Yeah, thank you. Um, so I want to ask each of you why you hold the positions you do, and then we'll just kind of open it up between you, and you can go back and forth. So take five to ten minutes on, on each side. So Bertha, why don't you start, and why don't you tell us uh, why are you pro-choice? Okay. So I have two main reasons why I am pro-choice, at least philosophically. Um, one is a matter of consistency with other rights that we have. And one is a more, which is funny because I just finished telling you how much I hate utilitarianism, right? One of them is actually utilitarian. Uh, so uh, I, will, I will talk about both. So I'll, I'll start off with two stories that, when I, that I tell my class about when we do this topic. One is uh, one time I was giving blood, like there's always a blood mobile and I was donating blood and um, I got really lightheaded. And, the, and the, la the lady who was doing the thing was like, okay, you know, you can stop. We can stop whenever you want. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And I was feeling really bad. Like, but they always get you in with like, you can save two adults or four babies. And I'm like, babies? Of course I'll save them. Uh, so I'm kind of like, no, no, I, I want to, because I guess you can't do a partial donation. So if you, even, you stop, you got to throw the whole thing away, right? So like, no, no, I want to save four babies. And she's like, okay, but, you know, it's still up to you. And then I was like, okay, but what does that tell me, right? So here's a situation where I could feasibly save the lives of four children. Um, that's why I want to do it. But even the most minimum inconvenience to me would be enough for me to say stop, right? I don't want to give blood anymore. It's my body. It's my choice. Even if that means I'm going to, four babies might die or something because of that. And that illustrated to me that here's a situation where people can make choices about how they want to use their body to help other people. It's clear when it comes to blood donations. Clear when it comes to like bone marrow donations, right? You can't. If someone is dying from a bone marrow transplant, or they, or they need a bone marrow transplant, you can't force anyone to do that for them. Doesn't mean they're not persons. Doesn't mean they don't deserve care or, or compassion. It just means that there are limits to what you can force some people to do for other people. Um, I always show my my students a, a, a very quick clip of the, are you familiar with the movie My Sister's Keeper? And it's about essentially a savior sibling uh, a child that was created for the express purpose of giving bodily fluids to her older sister who's dying of cancer, who's very sick, who's always been sick. And at some point she goes, I'm not doing this anymore. I think at, at some point they want her to give a kidney. Uh, and she's like, nope, this is it. I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not giving you any more kidneys. I'm not giving you more blood. I'm not giving you more bone marrow. And I've never, and we show that clip in class and then we talk about it. And I've never had a student ever in the years I've been showing this clip saying, no, I think that little girl should be forced to give her sister her kidney. Never had that happen. And so the intuition seems to be that there are, there are limits to what you can ask of one person to do for another person, even if it's to save that person's life. Uh, and bodily infractions seem to be a limit that we don't cross, or we don't even think about crossing in almost any other question but the abortion question. And so consistency, I just think we have to do the same thing. I think, you know, pregnancy, I've, I've given blood and I've been pregnant and I'd rather give blood. Um, <laughs> pregnancy is, a, is really hard. Even, even, the most, even the most perfectly, you could be healthy the entire nine months and, and the birth, I mean, I have a friend who had an, nine months, she barely knew she was pregnant. Nothing, no morning sickness, no nothing. And then had a complicated birth where her pelvis shattered and she had to learn to walk again. Um, I had health issues with my second child and they're permanent. They're not, they're never going to go away, but I wanted to do it. That was my choice. So to, to require a woman to undergo, um, and 
a pregnancy against her will, with all that entails, with all the possible health violations or health issues that can come from that, the psychological things that can come from that. We, we, don't, we don't force people to give blood to save other people. And that's 20 minutes of nothing comparatively to nine months of pregnancy. I cannot see how we can consistently ask women to do that when we don't require this of anyone else. We don't force donations, we don't force transplants, we don't force bone marrow, we don't force blood donations, we don't force it on anyone. We, there's a limit to what we are required to do for other people's lives. And, uh, and the bodily infra infractions seem to be pretty high up there with things we don't force people to do. And for consistency's sake, I think you gotta do the same here for pregnancy. That's the main reason. But there are also empirical reasons as well. Maybe I should say empirical instead of, of utilitarian. Um, it's all of the evidence, all of the research I've done is abundantly clear that prohibitive abortion laws just do not save babies. They do not reduce abortion rates. They do not, uh, they're, not they're not good for women. They're not good for the babies. They're not good for fetuses. I have some stats. Um, Here's a quote. Abortion rates have declined globally over the past 25 years, according to a comprehensive new report. And most of those changes have occurred in developed regions with liberal abortion laws. Um, the abortion rate is 37 per 1,000 women in those countries versus 43 per 1,000 women in countries where abortions are is restricted. Um, and all the developed regions, abortions fell from, 40, uh, from 46 per 1,000 women uh, to 27, and the steepest decline has been seen in Europe, where they, and their abortion laws are even more liberal than ours. Um, but for countries like in South America, where abortion is highly restrictive, you get about the same amount of abortions. And, and those are the ones that are reported, like women that get, go to hospitals because they're bleeding out from illegal abortions. Who knows how many happen that are never reported. It just, it just doesn't work. And so um, if, I'm, if I'm interested in saving, if I'm genuinely interested in saving fetuses, and actually, believe it or not, I am, right? I don't like abortions. I wish nobody had one. If I'm genuinely interested in saving babies and saving fetuses, prohibiting abortion just does not, there's no evidence that that works. Um, what is evidence that works, and we can talk, and we have, we talk about that later, is comprehensive sex education, uh, you know, medically accurate sex, you know, I live in Arizona. Arizona is one of the countries that is not required to have medically accurate sex education. Uh, that's a disaster, right? We've seen that, that states that have, uh, um, there's a, uh, oh my gosh, abstinence only educate, sex education have a higher rate of teen pregnancy. Well, there's a reason, there's a reason for that, right? Uh, countries that there's evidence that sex, sex education, contraception, and social, social welfare programs are correlated to the reduction of abortion rates. So if, if I'm interested in seeing abortion rates reduced, let's go with what the evidence shows. And the evidence does not show that making abortion illegal is gonna do a thing about it. So those are my two reasons. I have these, these more principled reasons about consistency and more empirical reasons about what works. All right, thank you, Bertha. Jack, tell us why are you pro-life? I'll give it a shot. Um, yeah, so we, we, we've got a lot to talk about there. Yeah. But, uh, um, yeah, so let's see. Um, so I'm pro-life because I think that abortion is an act against a vulnerable party, okay? Uh, namely, the fetus, the unborn child, right? Uh, you know, by the way, we often hear medical terminology that could call, you know, uh, something, you know, the, the, the relevant uh, thing is, 
a zygote, a conceptus, an embryo, a fetus. I'll, sometimes I'll just use fetus as shorthand for any of those uh, um, uh, prenatal states. Um, you know, so we, we often hear that, uh, you know, to be fully pro-life, right, uh, you know, you need to, to have a fully pro-life view. And I just want to say that, yeah, I think that's right, right? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm certainly um, need to confess lots of inadequacies there, but uh, I do think uh, capital punishment is bad. I think subverting economic, racial, and other forms of injustice is good. Right, uh, gun control bad. Family leave policies good. Right, you know I'm no, you know I don't think you're going to find in the current uh, political climate one party that's really doing this well. Right, um, but uh, so so just with that preface, right, uh, um, I just want to say that. But um, but so to talk a little bit about a kind of pro-life case, uh, you know, uh, for the moral impermissibility of abortion. Uh, I want to say two things, and pro-lifers have to say two things, by the way. The first thing they have to say is that uh, the fetus uh, is, is a person, right, uh, in, in the moral and legal sense, okay? Um, but actually, that doesn't win the whole argument, because uh, as Bertha knows, and this is God bless you, your favorite line of argument, right? Because uh, it's right. Know, yeah, I mean, this, this is, uh, um, this is uh, you know, her, her favorite line of argument is the, uh, is, is the one that says, let's grant for the moment that the fetus yeah. is a person. Even then, right, uh, you've still got to do some more work, namely to show that, right, uh, the, uh, you know, the mother's autonomy doesn't extend so far uh, as to uh, allow her to uh, terminate the pregnancy by, you know, uh, killing the unborn child. Okay, um, so uh, there are lots of, okay, so let's talk about the first one, personhood, right? Uh, there are two ways we often do that. We often talk about kind of endowment views of the person, and we often talk about uh, performance views of the person. An endowment view of the person would say, okay, this is who you are, Right? Uh, this is the kind of thing you are, and you have dignity by virtue of your being the kind of thing you are. Right? Uh, a, per a performance account right, would say, okay, in order to gain the dignity that, let's say, we think you have, you need to actually you know, uh, reach a performance level uh, you know, where you're actually doing the things that we think are important for you to do, thereby to gain dignity. Okay? Um, now that there's some there's some room to fudge some of that, but uh, and we can talk about that. But but I think performance views are problematic. Okay, um, you know, for one thing, right? Uh, I think I, you know uh, I think that it treats the fetus as uh, the fetus's condition of dependency is another accidental feature of where it is along a developmental tra developmental chain, and. It strikes me as another thing, like age, or you know, uh, or you know, gender, or something like that. And we often think, well, gee, you shouldn't discriminate based on those kinds of things. And I think condition of dependency is a similar kind of thing, right? Uh, now, um, and I also, so you know, part of the problem I think is that any personhood, any view of personhood that uh, holds a performance view of personhood, where you gotta perform certain things or reach certain capacities, uh, I think is going to founder on the fact that you, I don't think you're going to successfully be able to say 
why this thing, right? Uh, you know, why, why, you know, like a temporarily comatose patient deserves dignity, whereas a fetus doesn't, right? Deserves moral treatment under the law and so on, right? I just don't think that's going to work. It, it suggests that the resumption of consciousness is somehow more important than the initiation of consciousness, and I don't think that's true. I don't think those are relevantly different, right? Um, so that's, that's one aspect of the thing. The other thing is that I just think uh, grounding uh, personhood in a thing like law and, and, and moral treatment on a thing like consciousness is just spooky, right? None of us knows what consciousness really is at the end of the day. It's such a vexed question, right? I mean, we're really trying to figure out how, you, how does consciousness arise? It's a notoriously difficult question, right? Um, you know, and I think we treat each other with, you know, with respect and moral treatment when, you know, just by walking around the world and bumping into each other. Right? Why wouldn't we think that, right? Uh, you know, organismal integrity, right, uh, or just you know, being the the human animal that you are, the living human animal walking around the world that you are, and having the organic integrity that you do, right, uh, the living human animal that you are, would be the the very kind of thing we thought qualified for moral treatment, right? Um, and so, you know, I don't think that. Uh, a mysterious thing like consciousness is the place to start when you're trying to talk about who gets moral treatment and who gets, you know, uh, legal consideration. I think that's a strange way to start. I don't, I don't think it's terribly helpful, right? Um, you know, so then, uh, so that's a little bit about right uh, the personhood thing, um, and then just a little bit about the, you know, the other line, right? Um, so. This, this argument, the one that, uh, you know, God bless you, you like, right? The one, <laughs> one about, uh, you know, uh, autonomy, right? Uh, part of the trouble is that uh, we often say, okay, well, the woman's got to have the autonomy to terminate the pregnancy, which will result in the death of the unborn child, right? Um, and I think the problem is that pregnancy just turns out to be this very unique state where doing that, Right involves right uh, grave harm to someone I think is a person. Now there aren't lots of other states like that. In fact, there are probably no other states like right. that. Right, and I grant that. Right, but here we are. Right, uh, that is a unique state. Right, and it deserves unique care and unique respect and unique deference. Mm -hmm. Right, uh, but it also uh, is a unique state by by virtue of what what kinds of actions you can take. Right, uh, you know, you, you'll you'll probably hear Bertha talk about uh, McFall v. Shimp, yeah. right? Uh, the bone marrow case where the judge decided that. Um, gosh, I'm gonna forget who. I think McFall, McFall is the one. McFall needed the. the McFall needed the, right. needed the the bone marrow, and Shimp declined to give his bone marrow. Okay, uh, and the judge ruled in Shimp's favor, namely that he didn't have to give his bone marrow. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, and. You know, at some point, right, uh, I, I just sort of, uh, you know, and here's where Bertha and I are sort of uh, unique in this debate. I, I just, at some point, I think the judge didn't see a third path, right, uh, because 
Um, the judge said, okay, well, Shimp doesn't have to give his bone marrow, right? Uh, and I grant that Shimp shouldn't be strapped down and sort of have his bone marrow forcibly extracted, right? Uh, but at the same time, should the law take no interest in someone's right, uh, decision not to help out, right? Uh, someone uh, who, who will simply die, right? Uh, and, and all you need to do is give bone marrow. Right? And you are sufficiently unique in a lot of bone marrow cases where that might be, you might be one of the very few people, right, certainly within reach, who can give this type of bone marrow. Right? Uh, and Thompson, who's the, who's the kind of originator of this right. line of argument, right, at one point she says, there might be some right, uh, cases of abortion that, and this is, these are her words, where Morning. she says that, that some, some would be uh, indecent. Right? Uh, and those are her words, mm -hmm. right? Um, and one of the things I just want to say is that I think, I think the idea that the law takes no interest in someone refusing to donate bone marrow when the person is simply going to die without it, right? I just wonder whether as a society we could ratchet up the level of dignity or decency we expect. Just a little, right? That's it. Right. Maybe it's okay that the society could expect a little more decency. That's all. Right? Mm -hmm. And and when you when you when you if you ask that question and you think how much more decency should society countenance, that's gonna get you in this debate in an interesting way. So So the floor is open for you to respond to each other? Oh there's so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start with the last. So, like, I actually, I don't disagree with you about the decency thing. That's the thing. I just think that if we're going to make the analogy between these types of cases and abortion, I think the, I think, I guess, my main question is: to what can the government and or the state force? And I'm, I'm willing to jump on the ship and say to you that we probably have far more responsibilities to each other than we agree on. Um, and I think that by every, by every stretch of decency, Shimp should have given that bone marrow, right? Uh, I would have. The judge even says. And the judge even says it, like, you're, I mean, in, in, in nicer words, he says right. you're being a jerk, right? right. Yeah, yeah, he absolutely says it. But I think that's a distinction, and, that, and Thompson, that I think there's a distinction between moral decency and what can be forced. What can the law come in and say you're gonna do? And that's where I think, where it comes to abortion, I, there might, I'm with you, I've met them. I've met cases of abortion that I, I just kind of shake my head and go, I can't believe that's the reason you're getting one, right? That's a really horrible reason. Um, and I've written about that too. But can I say the government can come in and force her to stay pregnant? No, I cannot go that far. I cannot go that far and say, I don't see what the, I don't see what the third option would be for like a McFaul versus Shim case other than strap him down and take his bone marrow without, I just don't, is there, it could be a third way, I'd love to hear it, a, a way, but saying that we should expect more from each other in terms of basic decency, totally with you. Saying that we can force someone to do that in terms of like government, you know, government, government intrusion, I can't, I just can't go that far. And, and similarly with abortion, I just can't, I can't imagine forcing a woman to do something that could, that first of all, could kill her. I think, I think we forget, I mean, the United States currently is the, 
is the is the currently is has the highest rate of maternal mortality in the entire first world. I mean, and that's more recent. We're we're getting worse. Eastern Europe is one of the best ones. So the idea of dying during childbirth or pregnancy is very real. It's not like one in a million thing. It happens. I have stats somewhere here that I can find. Uh, but even if you don't die, I mean, you could get you, know, you could bleed out. You could have I mean placental abrasion. You know, where, where you internal bleeding. You could have you could have a stroke. Uh, you could have gestational diabetes that turns into regular diabetes. You can have embolisms. You can, I mean, there's a ton of, ton of bad things that can go wrong in those nine months. It's not just, you're, you're not just renting a room out, right? And so I think that to force a human being to do that, it's, it's just, I just can't, I can't get there. I'm just not there. Um, this, it doesn't mean that I don't have any compassion. I have compassion for the McFalls in the world. I have compassion, and I have compassion for fetuses. I don't like abortions. I've, you know, I, I always at the beginning of this research, I thought if I'm gonna if I'm gonna write about this, if I'm gonna put myself on in public like this, I'm gonna sit there and I'm gonna watch. I'm gonna look at those pictures. I'm gonna watch those videos that pro-life, you know, people. And I watched all of them, and I hate them. I find them repulsive. I still can't tell. I can't get on board with the government getting involved and in, in forcing women to do this. That's the, the that's one of the ways I would respond. Um, in terms of consciousness, this is interesting because I actually put a lot more stock on consciousness than than you do. Um, you know, so like in, in my bioethics classes, we we talk about uh, we start off with euthanasia, like cases of uh, people in persistent vegetative states for like 10, 15, 20 years, um, and so we talk about people that you know went into a vegetative state like you know in 1980 and and physically died 20 years later. And within those 20 years, there was not a speck of consciousness, right? They never came back. And I always ask my student, when did they die? When did the person die? And there's at least a legitimate debate that the person died at the onset of the vegetative state and not when the body died. And there actually have been really famous cases of people who have persistent pers vegetative states that have finally died. And there's two death dates on their, on their tombstone the day they went into the vegetative state and the day their body expired. Making it clear, and I think the implication is that the person died before the body did. And so at least, we, not everybody agrees with that, but there's, you could at least, if you start with that, you can see like, yeah, there might be, you know, if someone was in a persistent vegetative state for 20 years and they never had an iota of consciousness, I'm tempted to say the person died when she went into that state and not 20 years later when the body died. I think consciousness is related to identity, and I think that's a, 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 a that's what makes the the temporary coma case different from the a fetus case, because someone that comes back from a temporary coma sustained their identity towards that. They come back and they remember everything. They they, they they kind of fell asleep and they pick up where they left off, right? So there's a sustainment of identity in the in the temporary coma case, whereas a preconscious fetus hasn't started their identity yet, right? If you think that your identity is related to your mind then you start when your mind starts and your mind does not start at conception. There's, there is, and there's actually a lot of uh, neurological evidence about when does, we don't know exactly how consciousness begins or starts, I agree with you that's muddled, but there is a lot of neurological evidence about uh, what needs to happen in a body for at least consciousness to be possible. And in the fetuses that just doesn't happen until like mid-pregnancy, the neurons aren't lined up, you know, connected to the spinal cord correctly, which is connected to the, 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 the the brain correctly, um, and so because I think that our identity is really connected to our consciousness, I think that I don't think I began to exist at when my 
when sperm hits the egg. I think I began to exist when my mind was born, whenever that was. And I don't know exactly what in pregnancy happens, but it doesn't happen at conception. Um, so I, I just do think, I think that there's more to consciousness than, I, I put more stock in it than Jack does. Mm -hmm. right. Well, gee, there's a lot to talk about yeah. there. Um, <laughs> let's see. Um, I, I've got a chance to respond yeah. a little bit. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so thanks for, thanks for that. I mean, um, I, I, I just want to say a couple things. I don't want to make them overly long, but, um, yeah, I mean, you wondered about the third way, and I think, I think the, the third way is um, neither to strap Shimp down and forcibly extract his bone marrow, nor... Uh, to merely let it be the kind of thing about which the law lets him completely off the hook, but okay. simply to impose certain, uh, you know, sanctions by law. And, and you might say, well, gee, but, the, but McFall's going to die then. And I say, yeah, he is actually going to die. But it's still, right, <laughs> this law is still going to take some interest in it, right? So that the law still has some interest in the case, right? Um, you know, uh, we... You know, uh, we often draw parallels in the abortion debate to, uh, you know, military service and yeah. things like this, right? Uh, and it's very common for, for uh, you know, uh, nations of various sorts to think that, you know, there's something maybe that, that people need to give back, right? Uh, and in some cases, those are, you know, pretty significant sacrifices that they expect their people to make, right? Um, Okay, uh, so that's one thing. How would that third way, like, what would it look like in an abortion case, do you think? Abortion, well, I don't, that's the problem, is that I don't think it, it bears the same resemblance to an oh, abortion okay. case in this case, okay. because, right, uh, I don't think Shimp uh, has established the same condition, the, the same relationship of uh, being needed. I don't think McFall okay. stands in the same type of condition of dependency to Shimp as uh, a fetus stands to the mother. Okay. Okay. Um, so, uh, I mean, you, you, I mean, you know, when you say right, you don't want to force right, uh, you know, women essentially to gestate, right? Uh, and and that, I mean, I think in the case of abortion, right, we wouldn't be talking about it as abortion if it weren't already the case that she was gestating, right? right? Um, and so it's no longer a question of forcing her to undertake that state. It's one in which, you know, it's one she is in, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and, so, and so then the question is, what can happen, right? Uh, you know, can she undertake the kind of thing that will, you know, uh, result in grave harm to the fetus that she's carrying? And, and there I just think, well, uh, again, this is a very unique state, mm -hmm. right? Uh, there's nothing quite like it. Uh, but uh, this is a very, this is a case of direct grave harm to an, an innocent party, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it just, it, and again, so I'm not, I'm not persuaded then uh, that that's what we can do. Now, um, one other quick thing, and then I'll let go of this train. Um, uh, in, in what you just said, you said something about, uh, well, we, when you, you sustain your identity, sort of maybe, maybe mentally or through consciousness or something like that, and you referenced the Shivo case, essentially, yeah, where, yeah. where yeah. Uh, you know, Terry Shivo has, I think the tombstone says There's something like... There's two cases that that happens in. Yeah, happens. well, Shivo is definitely one Shivo of them. Shivo and Cruzan is the other yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. It says something like, uh, 
died this date at, at rest. Yeah, yeah or right. Something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, and the one thing I want I want to say about that, in, in the sense of you know, we want to say that the temporarily comatose patients, while they were in the coma, were sustaining their identity, mm-hmm. and and. I just want to say, I mean, the only thing that persuades me that their identity is, is being sustained is that they woke up in the same organism. It's like sleep. You sustain your identity when you sleep, well, right? Yeah, but it's not just like sleep, right? And, and I mean, you know, uh, we, we think that there, the continuity is there because, you know, the, the, the sort of organic conditions remain, right? Uh, now, I mean, if, unless we want to talk about which phenomenological conditions remain, and that's going to be a really hard yes. uh, thing to figure out, yes. right? Uh, and so, you know, I, at some point, right, and, you know, I just want to say, uh, you, you said that's why, why you don't think that you were an embryo in right. the usual sense, right? right. And that's, that's essentially the move that someone who thinks like this about consciousness has to make. You have right. to deny that you were an embryo. Right. Right? Because an embryo doesn't have consciousness, and you are so intimately linked right. with consciousness that you can't really talk about your being the embryo. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I just want to ask, with all due respect, just, yeah. who are you? Right, you know, like, who, who, who is the person, right? Uh, because is it, it you know, it, it's, I guess, the consciousness imbued organism, I guess, but... Are you asking me? Well, no, I mean, I think I'm a functioning brain. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, you're a functioning brain. And, right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we could go back and forth about that. Right. But yeah, so. Okay. I would like to highlight, though, how... The, how this right here, this debate right here, is so philosophically pregnant, for lack of a better word. Right, yeah. And it just, <laughs> but it just illustrates how how deeply how a lot of people have these views about abortion, with and have never done philosophy, right? And 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 they don't and they have these philosophical beliefs and they don't even know that they have them, right? Mm-hmm. So it's so important to it just illustrates to me how important it is to do philosophy before we do politics, before we do ethics, before we do all this stuff. So, Bertha, could um, say a little bit, I'd like to hear a little more about consciousness yeah. from you, because certainly consciousness can't simply mean, like, memory or awareness, right? Yeah. Because we certainly, most of us don't remember anything before right. age two, three, four, right? And there'll be some philosophers like Peter Singer who will say, you're not a person until, you know, you, you have some kind of awareness and autonomy. Mm-hmm. Right. and yeah. You know, I don't think he ever says where that is, but it, from his description, it sounds like four, five, six years old. Yeah. You're not a person until then. It sounds like you're not quite, no. you're not a Singerian. Uh, you you no. don't follow Peter Singer on that. So let's say a little bit more about consciousness and what that would mean, you know, in the womb. And then, yeah, just I, say a little more about that. I think, yeah, that's, uh, so McMahon has that view. that it's, He just calls it like the embodied mind account. So like, as long as you have the, the capacity for some, deg- some degree of awareness, that you have a mind, right? Uh, and that could be very rudimentary. So you have to be like an infant would still, I, I do think I was an infant. I do think I was a late-term fetus. Um, I don't think I was an embryo. Um, so just any, any, the capacity for just bare bones consciousness on this view would count as you. And so you sustain your identity. Uh, if heaven forbid you got into this horrible accident and you, and that results in you having like severe mental disabilities where you can't retain your memories, you can't, I still think you would still be you. I think that someone in the advanced stages of Alzheimer's still is, 
has an identity relation with the person they were before then because there's still some consciousness left. Um, I do think that babies, you have an identity relationship with the baby. Oh, there is something, you know, my husband and I did that with our children. We, we gave them the self-consciousness test every month until they got it right. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you know about this. It's like you put like a little dot on the forehead and you put them in front of a mirror. And then if they try to touch the dot, the implication is they think that's another person. Like when a bird is fighting with each other, with, with another. And then they go like this, right? They go, oh, they, they're self-aware, right? Uh, and so we did that with both our kids. And it didn't, I mean, it didn't happen until they were like a year and a half old, so... It takes a while before they're self-aware. Um, but yeah, I just, and to me, I start off with end of life, because end of life for me has a stronger intuition. If, if I went into a coma in 2018 and my body died in like 2030, I think I died in 2018. Um, I don't think I died when my body did. And actually, I, th I find this interesting, because I think if you have religious beliefs about souls, this should be far more intuitive than, than if you don't which is interesting because I don't know where I stand on souls. So um, most people think, you know, your body dies and your mind in some way ascends to heaven and goes to live with God. And so if you believe that's true, you believe your identity is, is something having to do with your mind. Um, so yeah, I just think I go where my minimally functioning, functioning brain goes as long as it, as long as it, you know, if you put my brain in his body, I'd be him, I'd still be me in a radically different body, right? Um, so, I don't know. Identity issues are tricky, but they're so much fun. So, actually, I wanted to follow up on something else. So, both of you keep saying, well, the, uh, the pregnancy situation is unique, and so none of these other um, analogies quite work. So, in one way, I think you're right, it is unique. On the other way, it seems to me utterly common since there's no other way of becoming human. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> but does that have any any weight? I mean, so in these extraordinary cases, right, then like the Shim McFall, I mean, that's, that's an extraordinary case. Um, and maybe, you know, not infrequent, you know, in, in the world, but an extraordinary case. But birth, you know, pregnancy, birth, you know, whatever is universal, right? So it seems to be that you can't be a human without this situation, right? Um, so does that have any weight in these debates? I think when you say unique, I, I just thought you meant there is no other comparable experience like it, rather than... That's what I meant. Yeah, so that's what I understood. That all these analogies are limited to what they can do because they they can never be completely comparable to pregnancy. That's is that what you meant by unique? That's what I understood. Yes. Yeah. So not unique as it doesn't happen a lot. Just like it happens a lot and there's nothing quite like it. So let me ask a hard question of each of you. So Bertha, clearly you think you, you said you know you think consciousness starts perhaps sometime. Yeah, late in the womb or maybe even the middle of the womb, you know, the middle of the pregnancy, you said at, at one point, I thought, you know, somewhere in that developmental point. Um, but um, I also understand that you think late-term abortions are permissible. I don't. Well, okay. Okay, not the one you're thinking. <laughs> <laughs> so your question is how? Like, all right, so I... so. There's so many, there, there are different layers to answering this question, right? So 
I think when, 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 people get, when pro-choice people get asked, how can you think late-term abortions are acceptable? There's so much to unpack in that question. Um, and so I think it's important to unpack it. Um, so late-term abortions are defined as abortions after 20 weeks. Right? That's, that's the, at least the, the legal definition that I'm aware of. Um, and those kind of abortions are exceedingly, exceedingly rare. I think that's important to start with that, right? So this idea that like, so when our president says, well, you could just walk into a clinic at nine months and get the baby pulled out of you. Uh, no, right? I mean, I, I have stats. 43 of our 50 states prohibit abortions after some point in pregnancy. 17 after viability, two after in the third trimester, 24 after a certain number of weeks, ranging from 17 to 20. Um, so 43 states have laws that at least make late-term abortions difficult to obtain. And they're expensive. That's the thing. If you're going to have an abortion, we're talking thousands and thousands of dollars. It's not something that you can just, it's not easy, it's really expensive. Um, According to the Center for Disease Control, which is like the most, bi I mean, I'm, I'm looking for bipartisan stuff. I don't want to go to like, according to the Center for Disease Control, 65.8% of abortions take place within the first eight weeks of pregnancy. 91.4% occur within the first 13 weeks. 7.2% occur between 14 and 20, which means 1.3% occur after 20. Right? That's again, Center for Disease Control. That's as bipartisan as I can find. Um, but who are those 1.3%? Because that's still, you know, if it's 1.3% of 1,000, it's still a few amount of numbers. But I say that because I think people begin with these are common, that women, and already I, can, I want to talk about the implications that people have about women, that women gestate for 20, 25, 30 weeks, feel this baby move in their bellies, get attached to them, and just go, yeah, no, not for me. And, you know, saunter into a clinic and just have an abortion willy-nilly. And that's just, I I. Maybe it does happen because nothing humanity does surprises me anymore, but it's certainly not at all the common late-term abortion, right? So who are that 1.3%? So 1.3% are, uh, most of them happen because of some severe fetal abnormality that is typically incompatible with life, for example, anencephaly, which is when your brain, the baby's brain doesn't grow, um, or because they have some severe, some severe issue, some health issue. Um, and I wanted to paint a picture of that for you. Um, so here's a quote. This is from a story of a woman who was taking care of a baby with Tay-Sachs, which is a very horrible disease. You're, you're born seemingly healthy, and then you, you're, you degenerate, you die at two or three, and it's horribly painful. And here's a quote that this is exactly from her. If I had known Ronan, that's her son, Ronan had Tay-Sachs, um, I would have found out what that disease meant for my then unborn child. I would have talked to parents who are raising and burying children with a disease, and then I would have had an abortion. Without question and without regret, although this would have been a, a different kind of mourning. I'm so grateful that Ronan is my child. I also wish he had never been born. No person should have to suffer this way. Daily seizures, blindness, lack of movement, inability to swallow, a devastating brain with no hope for a cure. Both of these statements are categorically true. Neither are mutually exclusive, right? Um, so, I th and there's a ton of stories like this out there, right? So when they do happen, they typically happen because of something this bad. Now, does that mean that it's always that way? Does that mean that that's every single case of a late-term ab uh, abortion? No, I'm sure there are cases of late-term abortions 
they're not health related, um, and that are uh, vol not voluntary. Um, they're not they're not medically necessary. I'm sure that's true. And I actually am not in favor of those kinds of abortions. I'm not in favor of aborting a perfectly healthy fetus at 35 weeks because you've changed your mind. Um, and I, so I'm not in favor of that. And I think that a lot of people like to paint that scenario as the common late-term abortion. And that part is untrue, right? So, so you think com you, you can compel, there can be compulsion, state-sanctioned compulsion, for some period of the pregnancy? I think once the fetus is viable, I think it's a lot harder to justify it, right? If you can remove, if, if the issue is, um, I'm not, I shouldn't be obligated to use my body to sustain the life of another being, and if that's your argument, and that is my argument, I think that once you no longer need that body to sustain the human being, if you can remove the fetus without killing it, you should. Right? You should try, you should go as much as you can for that. If you don't need to kill it to respect her bodily autonomy, you should do whatever you think is necessary to not kill it. Um, but in cases like this, when you're talking about a, a very diseased or a, a fetus with a disability that is, would make their life painful, I think we're talking less about abortion and more about euthanasia. And then I think that then we have to talk about the ethics of euthanasia. But I think those are different from the ethics of abortion. Thank you. Jack, you're in the hot seat now. All right, Jack, um, how, I know, so I know you are against abortion in all cases. So how could we be opposed to abortion in the cases of rape and incest? Mm. Um, well, gee, uh, one thing to say first, and that's a really hard question. Uh, I'll try this, how's that working? Better? Okay. Uh, one thing you should know about what Bertha just said is that uh, um, that actually makes the, the, the view that she just articulated, uh, namely that you don't have the right to seek the death of yeah. the fetus, is actually, uh, um, that's not universally held. That is true. Right? That uh, is absolutely true. That's, that's, there are definitely uh, uh, pro-choice advocates who think that you do have that right. Yes, they do. Right. Um, and I think they're wrong. Yeah, and, yeah. and that, 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 that kind of recognition sort of shows that there can be some common ground in, in talking about some of these mm -hmm. things because there's, there's just some recognition that uh, we might find some similar values mm -hmm. at some point, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any way to make uh, cases of, of rape and incest easy, right? Uh, and I just need to recognize that. There's, there's, no, there's no way to make that an easy question, right? Uh, every theory has uh, its hard points, right? Um, every theory, uh, every view about, right, uh, you know, what constitutes care, right, uh, for someone, right, uh, has its hard points. There are always going to be difficult questions, right? Um, you know, um, thinking of uh, one of the theorists that Bertha knows I just mentioned, right, uh, uh, Soren Reeder, right, I, yeah. mean, I mean, she takes a, a rather extreme view of uh, the, uh, uh, the, the cases of, of rape and incest, right, she actually says that uh, those, those fetuses have negative moral status, yes, right, that's, that's her language. Right, uh, she thinks that they have. Uh, she even suggests that it, that it would be morally required to abort them. Right, that's again just language she uses. Right, uh, and 
And I, I think that's kind of over the top, right? Uh, and, and actually, some, some, some other pro-choice advocates reined her in on exactly that point. Mm -hmm. Christine Overall argued mm -hmm. that she was over the top on that, yep. right? Um, and that recognition for me, right, uh, allows us to just sort of say, okay, well, what is the, the moral status, right, of, of any fetus, right, of, of any, uh, you know, uh, unborn child? And, and the, the hard question is, you know, like, look, if you, if, 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 if you think that, um, you know, uh, we're dealing with a vulnerable party in the womb, right? If you if you think that uh, that party is innocent, and if you think that um, you know uh, when you that it's not true that you have to attain a certain threshold of consciousness or be able to perform certain phenomenological activities or do stuff, right? Uh, if you think that that's true, right? That that's not what it takes to be a person. Then you have to recognize that that there are, there are people right whose origins are dubious, but who nevertheless need to be respected. So that's it. Thank you. Um, so we've been going uh, for about an hour, and um, I'd actually like at this point to just open the floor up uh, to some questions. We do have a microphone somewhere. There it is. <laughs> a microphone uh, a student with a microphone. Um, and so for this question and answer period, um, uh, because the question and answer period, I generally like the questions to come from the audience um, and the answers to come from our speakers. Um, so in that spirit, um, I'd like you to just, uh, before you get the microphone, it's a very powerful tool now that it's working. Um, <laughs> I'd like you to take a moment to actually formulate your questions as a question um, to avoid making speeches or giving commentaries or telling stories. And I'd also just, just again, encourage everyone to just uh, imitate the, the civility that's already been modeled uh, for us. So if you have a question, raise your hand and, and we'll have a student uh, come around. because I was curious, I looked it up, and according to the Oxford Dictionary, murder is the premeditated killing of one human to another. Um, I don't think anyone uh, hasn't talked about it. Um, and I believe all abortions are premeditated. Um, so is there another word choice that you would use, and how would that change the meaning of what you think actually goes on with that? Thank you. Uh, thanks. Yeah, so um, I, I guess, is that okay if I take that one? Or, yeah, yeah, I right, think it's right. just for you. I, I, I gathered that was something maybe I should start with. Okay, okay. Um, okay, uh, yeah, so um, uh, thanks. Uh, I, 
I'm a little skeptical of dictionaries sometimes. <laughs> right. um, I think they are records of how English language speakers use their language, but I don't think they're necessarily uh, philosophical source books. Right? Uh, and I also think that, uh, you know, where it, I mean, so yeah, I mean, it is, is I mean, it, it raises a good point, right? I mean, um, are there, yeah, so, you know, when you're talking about something that's premeditated, sure, right? I mean, I mean, one could say on that definition that someone might, any any action one might undertake and 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 with full knowledge, right? And and, and in that sense, premeditated would would qualify, I suppose. I I, I mean, legal legal uh, penal codes don't actually use the term murder in that way, right? So maybe they're wrong, but but that's how that's how actual penal justice gets executed, right? Uh, and so, um, you know, when, uh, so again, I mean, maybe, maybe they shouldn't use the, the term in that way, but, but they do, right? Uh, and, uh, and so, um, yeah, so I, I would say, well, uh, is it in some sense premeditated? Sure, but I think that it's good that penal codes take into account Right, uh, various kinds of circumstances, right? Like whether something was, I mean, and some of these might not be relevant in the case of abortion, but whether a thing is an act of self-defense, whether it was provoked, whether, uh, you know, what the state of the agent was at that time, right, mentally or otherwise, right? Uh, so I just think that there are relevant factors that go into, right, how, how you know, like actual penal, penal codes, right, determine, right, a term like murder. Although she could give me some grief about this, right? Because you don't you don't like what I, what I say about this in the book, at least. But um, but yeah, I don't know. So so you know, I mean, maybe it's maybe I shouldn't be as skeptical of dictionaries as I am, right? But I am, right? Uh, I'm a little skeptical, right? Uh, because because I don't know, partially because philosophers haggle over definitions all the time, right? Uh, Do you have another word that you would use? Uh, no, because I want to hold to my term. I want to hold to my usage. <laughs> I, I like. Uh, is there is there another term I want to use other than murder? Right for right. for abortion in particular, I think. Um, yeah, I have a definition, but I can pull it up in the book for you. Right. <laughs> um, here, I'll tell you what it is. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Do you know what page it's on? Oh, it was close enough. All right. Uh, all right. So. So I, so here, thanks for asking this question, and I'm sorry I'm answering it weirdly, okay? Right. He's, he's uh, quoting himself now, I, by yeah, the way. I'm, I'm, totally, I'm totally quoting myself now, um, but uh, so I, I would define abortion as an intentional act, so premeditated, right, uh, whose sole immediate effect is the termination of a pregnancy and which places a non-viable or viable embryo fetus or unborn infant in grave peril by reason of the act itself. Right. That's not a word. <laughs> he wants a word. He wants a term. Do I have a word for, abor for abortion? I don't know. It's abortion. Right? Homicide? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, so a coroner can determine, right, uh, that an act is homicide. And then there's the question of what, what category with respect to penal code it belongs to, right? So a more generic term would be homicide. Sure. And that's fine. Yeah. Microphone is over here, please. 
Sure. Thank you so much for a great dialogue. I've heard you both say one thing that's really huge, the same. And so I want to ask this. You both sound pro-life to me. Both of you don't want to end the life of any fetus. Both of you want to save as many lives as possible. So my question is, what's the way that we can save the most life po lives possible? Is this in particular reference to, to, to abortion, right? Yes, yes, okay. yes, yes. So that's actually, that's in, can you pull up chapter five? No, so that's, that's one of our, that's one of our, we have a chapter at the end of the book where, where we talk about all the things that we have in common, which are quite a bit. Um, and one of them is that we, we are in favor of what has been shown by the evidence to reduce abortion rates. Um, and I've touched a bit upon this. Uh, I'm all, I mean, I'm in favor of, I mean, I would give out contraception like candy, right? Actually, my, 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 the, the doctor that delivered my daughters um, is, uh, was, is a Christian. He's no longer my doctor because he moved away. But, um, and it was very pro-life, very involved in the pro-life community in, on, in Arizona. But he said he thought his exact words were like, I think birth control pills should be sold in vending machines for like a dollar. Right. So, uh, wide access to contraception. I, I mean, I, I have stats. You know, I come ready with stats. He comes ready with the book, but I have. Um, I forgot now where I have them. But um, oh, the, uh, there's a study from 2012 from the Washington School of Medicine. More than 9,000 women in the St. Louis area were given no-cost birth control, and the amount of unplanned abortions fell by 62 to 78 percent in St. Louis in 2012. So I just think that's just the Elvis is overwhelming. You know, people don't get abortions if they don't have pregnancies they don't want, right? So um, I'm all in favor of contraception, you know, as medically accurate sex ed. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised the stuff I hear. I mean, I, I teach college students and the stuff I hear them say about contraception and pregnancy is blows my mind with how medically inaccurate it is. Um, I had I have one student who I heard and I actually stopped the class and like this is nothing to do with philosophy of religion but I'm going to talk about this who thought that the HPV vaccine prevented all STDs all of them AIDS everything like no let's stop and have this talk right um, so more education about sex ed medically accurate sex ed contraception and you know this is the part that a lot of people don't like to hear although Jack is not one of those people um, there's a lot of evidence that social welfare programs go a really long way. If people don't have to be scared about being poor and destitute, they might not have as many abortions. Like, uh, there's, a, there's a correlation between abortion and poverty. Women under the poverty line are far more likely to get abortions than women over it. Um, so if people didn't have to worry about that, if women didn't feel that they had to choose between becoming a self-sufficient member of society and having a baby, maybe they wouldn't choose to have that abortion. Um, and in all of my research that I've done on this issue, I've read countless stories of women that have aborted and it comes up over and over again. I didn't think I could finish school. I didn't think I could get a job. My, my partner left me. My parents threw me out. Um, we were gonna be homeless. We were gonna be this. All these are these socioeconomic concerns. So if we took seriously these socioeconomic concerns as a society um, and wouldn't belittle people who took these programs as like lazy, you know, if, if we actually supported each other, even in times of poverty, that could also go a long way. And I think there's so much evidence that those three things together 
plummet abortion rates. So I'm all for those three things. So, so Bertha, uh, um, uh, so, I, so we agree on, uh, we agree, I think, almost completely on economic and social justice yeah. type things. Uh, um, we agree less, but still some, on sexual ethics, mm -hmm. right? Because we think that uh, it's important to, uh, you know, keep in mind that, uh, you know, if you've got a relationship that will foster wanted and welcome pregnancies, right, uh, then that's going to result in, you know, less abortions, right? Yeah. Uh, and, um, and that uh, r respecting sex uh, and, and, you know, you know, teaching folks about how significant, right, uh, sex and sexuality is, right, uh, and how much it ought to be respected, right, uh, and we've got different ways that we think that, that could work out, but, uh, but th that's a key thing too, right, you got to form the culture too, Absolutely. right, uh, and with pornography at, uh, you know, uh, available at rates that are just unprecedented in human history, right, that's not helping things, right, um, but, uh, it, it surprised me that you started with contraception because in the fifth chapter, that's actually the thing about which we have the least, the least common, agreement. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I will say that your the, your writing of it is is really awesomely nuanced, and I appreciate it very much. Thanks, um, but, but 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 maybe if I can say just a little bit about yeah. where we where we kind of uh, you know uh, finesse it a little bit. Um, so. So I, I'm a Catholic, right, and I, and I think that, and I could try to spell this out in, in more detail uh, if we wanted to, but I don't, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just start with the idea that I don't think contraception is a, is a great thing, right? Um, I do think that, and, and I think Pope Benedict XVI in that famous uh, moment in, gosh, uh, I don't know, 2010 or something, um, uh, he acknowledged that if you put, if, look, abstinence only doesn't have to be the model. It can, you, you do, you do want to think about abstinence when you're not dealing with a sexual relationship that honors the significance of sex. Yes, I think that that's an important key to it. If you don't talk about that, if you just have, if, if sex uh, occurs outside of those relationships, then it's less likely that the pregnancy is going to be wanted and welcome, right? So I do think that has a role, okay? Uh, then, right, uh, if you are engaged in uh, sexual activity, I think that, right, you know, the, this famous ABC model, right, and Pope Benedict explicitly, uh, you know, gave a hand wave to the ABC model, which is abstinence, be faithful, right, so if, if, if you're not abstinent, then be faithful, right, uh, that is, you know, restricted number of sexual partners, right, uh, you know, uh, you know, Look into monogamy. Give it a try, right? You know, <laughs> right? Um, you know, uh, the water's fine, uh, um, but uh, you know, uh, and uh, you know, the um, then, right? Uh, if all of those things no longer be in the case, right? Um, 
are there certain regrettable situations, right, in which, right, uh, you know, condom usage, for instance, can minimize risk, right? And I think Pope Benedict XVI explicitly says that, yes, there are some cases in which condom usage can help minimize risk. That's what Pope Benedict XVI said, right? And, and I think that that doesn't mean that the act is morally right. It just means that if you're, if, if, if you're in a situation, in his case, as a male prostitute, right, where you've got many anonymous partners, right, and, you, you, know, you know, donning a condom might show, right, the, the preliminary awareness of how you can help minimize risks for other people, right? And so there are, uh, you know, certain regrettable situations in which that could play a role. Right again, right, and and are there are there societal cases in which that can play a role? Well, yes, there are, but it's not. It, I don't think it's as it, it, open and shut as, as as sometimes we hear. Right, and here's why. Right, um, you know, so here are some examples. Right, uh, you know, uh, so when you know you had uh, upon the introduction of widespread contraception usage right uh russia had right uh, you know the, the level of abortions did type taper off right but this was a case where you had very high almost catastrophic from a pro life perspective rates of abortion right um, another case right um you know in turkey where abortion and contraception laws were liberalized rates for both jumped right Right, uh, you know, after a while, right, uh, abortion rates went down a little bit, but they never, uh, you know, you know, returned to the lower level that they were at prior to that liberalization. Right, um, in Spain and Ukraine, you know, there are often high rates of condom usage and rates of elective abortion. So I'm just saying, right, uh, for me, it's part of a scaffolding, right. I agree that the only thing you ever say to someone is don't have sex and you never give them reasons why and you never teach them the insignificance of sex and you never talk to them about right, uh, being faithful and you never talk to them about, you know, look, you're engaging in clearly risky behavior that I don't condone, but have you at least thought about minimizing risks, right? Uh, you know, that that I think is you know the, the, that's some of the scaffolding that that I think could play a role there. Yeah. Thank you. The microphone is moving <laughs> slowly, fastly, quickly. It's getting there, and it has arrived. <laughs> Hi, um, question. How does the idea, I know, um, Bertha, you said you don't know um, what you think on souls, but I'd still like your response also. Um, how does the idea of souls change the conversation? I think it would depend on if you thought souls existed and when you think a human being acquires one. And I, I really have very little to offer there because that's something I'm, currently very much struggling with. Um, and it's probably like the one thing in my life that I am 100% agnostic about. Like I really, really, really want there to be souls. <laughs> and I really want, really want to believe that people who die are still exist at some point. Um, I don't, I currently haven't seen a lot of evidence for it. 
So I'm kind of really torn. Um, but if you believe that souls exist and you believe that souls are significant, a lot will depend on when you think a human being acquires one. You might have probably more to say on that than I do. Yeah, I mean, actually, in some ways, I might have less than you might expect, right? Because, um, so, so I think that, um, let's try this. Okay, so I think that, um, uh, the, the subject that I'm interested in is the living human animal, right? Uh, now, what it takes to be a living human animal is an interesting question, right? Uh, it turns out I do think that there's a role for a soul, right? Uh, and when you finally have a thing that we're willing to call a living human animal, right? Uh, but, meh. I mean, there are lots of people who, I mean, the thing about living human animals is that they're the things we bump into when we walk around the world. Right, uh, and so it's it, it, you know for the sake of moral theory, for the sake of you know uh, living in a pluralistic society where we still have to honor people, right? Uh, you know, and we're going to have varying different metaphysical views. Yes, we need to have enough metaphysics to tell us why people are worth honoring, but there are a number of different ways to do that, right? Um, so, uh, for instance, George and Tollefson, Robert George and Christopher Tollefson's book, Embryo, A Defense of Human Life, right? Uh, it's a pretty good book on, on embryo ethics from a point of view of, of, of a pro-life, uh, you know, from a pro-life viewpoint. And they are explicitly and assiduously completely, you know, they just don't say a thing about souls. It doesn't factor into their argument at all, right? They are, they're not, they're just not playing that game. Right? That doesn't mean that they don't think that there are souls. It just means that to formulate law and to, to, to figure out right, who, we who we need to respect and why, right, we might be able to eke that out without reference to other metaphysical things like souls. Right? Uh, now, uh, it turns out I'm a Christian, and I think there are certain religious views right, uh, that, that square more effectively with right, uh, some concept of a soul, though I'm not as much of a dualist as some people are. Right? But, uh, yeah, so, so do I think there's a soul? Yeah. Do I think there has to be a soul in order to, be, to formulate a pro-life uh, viewpoint? No, I don't. There's so. a question up front here. I was one, oh, thank you both for being here, too. I appreciate it very much, and I appreciate the civility. She's the one who had to fly from Phoenix. So. <laughs> um, I wonder if you would address, in Michigan, I don't know if this is the latest statistic, but it's, it's, one, it's close to it if it's not the latest. And in Michigan, our population is about 14% black, and yet 50.5% of the abortions are done on black women and black unborn babies. And I know that um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s niece, she's saying that it's the biggest civil injustice there is. It's a genocide. And abortion is very, very lucrative. And most of the abortions are targeted at college-age students. They're located right near them, including the one in Grand Rapids. 
And I just wonder if you'd comment because we're losing the black population over abortion. Do you want to do that? I mean, I can say something. Do you want to start? Um, I mean, I think if those statistics bear out, they we're losing the black population to poverty, um, of which abortion is a symptom of. Um, I mean, yet there's a ton of evidence. There's a ton of evidence that women who live below the abortion line, or the, the, uh, the poverty line, have a lot more abortions than women who don't. Um, and so uh, poverty, I mean, if, to that correlation, abortion is, a, is reflective of poverty. And not, so re, re, if, that's, if that, that boils out, I would say that we're losing, it, we're losing the black population, and probably the Hispanic population too, to poverty. Um, and I, I, I'm all in favor, you know, I, but yeah, I feel like we have a really schizophrenic attitude about this in society um, from people that, and again, I'm very grateful that Jack's not one of them, but for people that claim to be pro-life to simultaneously say it's bad to get abortions. It's also bad to seek help, economic help, if you need it, to take care of the babies that we just say you had to have. Um, it just, I just don't get how those two things are together. And and even in situations where we do give help, we shame people, right? You're lazy, you're this, you're that. I, I mean, I grew up on welfare. Uh, I grew up in Section 8 housing and Medicaid, um, in tenements, and I was constantly shamed, and my mom was ashamed. Uh, so I think that the, the, the solution, if there is one, is to address the, the prevalence of poverty in, in minority communities and to not make people feel ashamed when they when they seek the help that they need. Yeah, um, I don't know what it's like to be black, Latino, Asian, non-white, I'm white. But I do know that white people like me have made it extremely difficult <laughs> to not be white, <laughs> right? Uh, and. And that's, and that's why I think, on this point, I think Bertha and I see a lot of common ground, right? Just that, I mean, non-white people are disproportionately poor. They're disproportionately denied opportunities that would make for, uh, you know, that, you know that, that force them into positions, right, that uh, where dire choices come into view. Right, and that needs to happen less, right? Uh, and and that's that's why I think racial injustice should be, uh, you know, a consideration for any any person who has, uh, you know, claims to have a pro-life viewpoint, right? That that uh, there's serious and severe racial injustice. Uh, you know, I I know that I'm, you know, a guilty party, right? I'm I'm I have been am a contributor to racial injustice. I need to recognize it, I need to repent for it, and you know, to the, the small extent that I'm capable, I need to atone for it, right? Uh, and which is not to say that, I, that I'll ever be done, I won't, right? Uh, but when you don't face dire choices, right, uh, you tend to have fewer abortions. Uh, once again, as everyone said, thank you very much for being here and your insight. 
Uh, great dialogue. Um, you both mentioned uh, how pregnancy being different or very unique in the case of dependence of one person on another. Um, and you talked and how, you know, analogies will all break down in some way. Um, and you talked a little bit about uh, examples like, you know, we can't, we wouldn't force people to have blood transfusions or bone marrow transfusions to save another person's life. What would you say to the idea of, like pregnancy being very unique, the, uh, the organ and the body part of like the uterus and then eventually the placenta that it's prim different from other body parts, its primary function is not for the person who has it, but for another person. Mm -hmm. What would you say to that idea? Uh, I, I, in general, I hesitate translating moral, uh, biological facts to moral facts. Uh, I think that, I mean, the uterus is, has evolved in a certain way to sustain the, bio, the, the, the biological reproduction of life. Um, I, I, don't, I, don't think, and I don't think anything moral follows from that in and of itself. Uh, and I, I don't think that's true for, I mean, you could argue that about most of the sexual organs, right? They have evolved in a certain way to create life. Um, I just think biological facts alone do not entail moral facts. They might contribute to it, but alone by itself, I don't see any. And that, so if there's more that we could add, I might be willing to have that conversation. Right? Does, that, I don't know, does that make sense? Or, I don't know. Um, I, I, yeah. I feel like I, 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 don't want, I, I want to make sure that I respond to you well, but, but thank you. Hi, um, thank you both again for being here. Um, I, I mean, from what I've heard you guys say, I feel like we would all agree here that um, rape is a heinous crime. Um, according to Deuteronomy 22, a crime which is punishable by death. Um, that being said, I'm curious on what you guys would say. Um, the question being, what's wrong with rape? The reasoning. Okay. What, what's wrong with it? Yeah, okay, sure. Um, do you want to start? Or? I mean, I, gosh, I don't even know what's not wrong with rape. Um, I mean, there's so many things you could talk about. I, we talk a lot in the book about um, the importance of embodiment and how humans are embodied beings and that our, whatever your metaphysical beliefs are about minds and bodies, they're at least intimately related. Right. Um, and so violations of our body in, in, in any way that they happen tend to have deep psychological negative repercussions. Um, and I think rape is probably is the worst violation of your body that could, there could be. Uh, on top of that, there's always violence associated with it. And then there's the threat of death and being murdered that's associated with it. So it's just compounded one thing on top of the other. Um, but it's a, it's a subset of, a it's a bodily violation that you didn't agree to, and so I think it carries with it a host of horrible psychological repercussions mm -hmm. because of it. Yeah. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a really good article uh, called The Wrong of Rape, uh, which tries to answer that very question, what, what is wrong with rape? And actually, in, in the area of sexual ethics, uh, there are you know, different writers uh, that, that try to articulate what's wrong with rape. Uh, because some views uh, 
of what's wrong with rape don't explain the gravity of it enough, I think. Right, and that that so uh, David Archard's uh, article, uh, "The Wrong of Rape," I, I think is a pretty good one, uh, and I, I don't know, it's in the Philosophical Quarterly, but uh, but it's 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 a nice piece because it well it's a troubling piece, but but he's trying to explain uh, what about rape makes it the grievous wrong that it is, right, uh, and um, and I think I think ultimately his his answer is something like. Uh, you know, uh, a, a violation of someone's uh, sexual integrity, right? Uh, but in a, in, a, in, a, in a context where that's very central to someone's identity, right? And and um, and I think that that actually helps us pivot from that to talk about what's what's positive about wholesome and consensual sexual relationships, right? Uh, namely, that that. There's got to be a kind of entrusting, right, uh, of 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 one's sexual integrity, where, uh, where in another context without consent, there there could be the you know the attempted theft, right, essentially of, of that. Now, now that doesn't mean that uh, you know um, that you know uh, in a certain way. Uh, ones uh, there there are often there are these old uh, ancient medieval debates about the fact that yes one still retains one one's purity right after after uh, after a, a thing like that it's 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 not it's not that that means that uh, uh, someone has actually it's important to emphasize that there's no moral wrong on the part of uh, of, of the person who's been wronged right it's just a grievous harm right uh, and so um, yeah I don't know um, I think I'll stop there. So um, we've been going for about an hour and a half, and um, I'd like to end the way that you guys end your book, which is kind of a unique way. You dialogue, you back and forth, you critique each other's positions, which seems to make sense in this contentious debate. You do it very civilly, but then the book closes on these points of convergence, and I think we've heard a number of those already. But any other sort of last convergences that you'd like to highlight? Um, between your two positions? We've talked about most of them, right? <laughs> Mostly, um, yeah. I will say that I'm, my, my more liberal friends are always surprised. I'm surprising, surprisingly, according to them, conservative about issues of sexuality. Um, the monogamy, give it a try, I'm all about that. Right? So, um, I, and I, I, and we, maybe we should talk more about that, but I think that one part of the abortion debate that doesn't get talked about is the sexual messages we give to our youth. Um, how sex is portrayed as something like recreational. There's, I, there's been studies, I'm a big fan of studies, like studies done how like children exposed to, to entertainment that portrays sex so recreationally are more, will have, have a higher, a younger onset of sexual activity. Um, so I think that the ethics of sexuality is something that we don't talk nearly enough about or when we do, it's really black and white. Either you wait till you get married or go crazy, right? Um, and 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 it's just there's just so much gray and so much nuances there. Um, but yeah, I think if we took sex a lot more seriously as a society, that yeah, of course you'd see a lot, very, much less unplanned pregnancies. I mean, and my 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 person, the person who's currently my husband and I, um, you know, not we're we're actually not religious. We and we we don't have the the wait till you get married mentality, but um, but we did not go near each other until if it happened, we would keep it. 
there were different stages where it would have been easier to keep it, like now, right? When we got our jobs and whatever. But minimally, if it happened, we would keep it. Um, and we made that, and we agreed, and that's, and that's how we, and I don't think enough people have conversations like that. So I wanted to publicly support your, what you said about sexual ethics and monogamy and things. Any closing statements, Jay? Closing statements. <laughs> Any other points of convergence? Otherwise, we'll just clap our hands. Uh, I mean, I think... I think <laughs> well, they want us to clap, they're telling us to stop.